0: As Samuel Clement, who also many of you probably know better as Mark Twain, attended a Sunday service one, one, one Sunday. He met the preacher at the door afterwards and told the preacher that, he said, back home I have a book that has every word from your sermon in it. And the preacher was kind of taken back and he said, you know, I, I assure you the whole thing was original. I, I wrote it. Uh, there's no way you have that. And you know, Clement just couldn't pass this up, so he kept on, kept on talking and everything like that. Finally, the preacher said, I want to see this book. So Mark Twain, all right, I'll send it over in the morning. The preacher gets it, opens it up, happens to be a dictionary. And in the fly, we, fly leaf it, it, are written this little short phrase, words, just words. I, I got to thinking a little bit of that. Some sermons really just turn into just words. You know, maybe maybe he wasn't trying to be degrading Mark Twain, just kind of being funny, but some sermons just end up being just words. But some sermons, they, they provoke a, an action, or maybe reaction at least. Maybe that's a, a lot of sermons will provoke reaction. Today, I'll, I've got to be honest, I'm going to be borrowing a sermon. This is the only reason I felt like I could title it One Good Sermon. I'm borrowing it from someone else. It was a sermon, though, that was... An old, very old sermon, first preached about 2,000 years ago. It is one of the longest sermons that is recorded in the New Testament. And it's the sermon that Stephen gave. Last week, we talked a little bit of, of Stephen and as he was martyred and giving his life, and we focused on that aspect. But I, I told Galen, I said, we're going to repeat the service from last week because I just feel like we, I, I need to hit this from another angle. So he, he asked me if he ought to do the same songs. Did you notice? <laughs> Stephen is one of, the, uh, one of the seven first deacons that is chosen uh, under strict guidelines of being person of the word, I mean person of, of spirit, of faith, and of wisdom. Seven of them cho- chosen to handle the first church conflict dealing with distribution of food to the widows. And in a lot of, a lot of minds, that would have been enough service. But for Stephen, he doesn't stop there. Stephen doesn't limit himself to just waiting on the tables for the, for the poor widows. Acts 6 verse 8 says, Stephen, a man full of uh, God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. So he wasn't just feeding food, unless I guess that's the miracle in and of itself, that he was able to feed these Greek widows. But he was even more so preaching publicly uh, in the synagogues, at least. And Stephen, I just have to say, it's a Greek name. All seven of the the the, uh, deacons that are chosen to handle the problem with the Greek widows are all seven Greek names. I find that interesting that they chose the Greeks to take care of it, not just the religious elite, what we would consider the Jewish Christians at this point. But even more so, there in the synagogues, there were certain Greek Jews then that had taken issue with Stephen and what he had to say. They tried to argue with him, but 6 verse 10 says, None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit which Stephen spoke. They couldn't argue with him, and since they couldn't argue with him, then they, they conspired against him. Instead, men set out to accuse Stephen of blasphemy against God and the law, but specifically against the temple and Moses. 6.14 says, says that about, We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. These are very serious charges. These charges brought up in Acts six against Stephen were really the same charges that were brought up against Jesus not all that long ago, not all that long before this, and so Stephen, knowing what happened with Jesus, has got to know where this is going. And there are accusations, lies that were sp- spoke against him. Now, with these lies, there probably is some sliver of truth. Is not that how most lies work? When you You almost have to defend it yeah i said that but it wasn't you took it out of context it was it was almost there i bet just stephen had said certain things especially what jesus jesus saying jesus saying himself that he would destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days the apostle john whenever he records it in chapter 2 verse 19 19 through 21 Make sure that the reader knows that Jesus is talking about his own body here. He's not talking about that physical temple up there. He's talking about his own body. And like Jesus, Stephen probably took exception to what the, the synagogue rulers, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, had taken to understand to be the law. Is more so that their interpretation of the law was equated on the same level, and Stephen didn't agree with that. And so, yeah... Those accusations might have been true, or at least partly true. But they were serious accusations. So they dragged Stephen into a court in front of the Sanhedrin. The ruling body. These are the ones that are going to decide his fate. Hear his argument, decide his fate. After all the accusations are given, they look at Stephen for his answer. But I like what it says here in verse 15. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen. Because his face became as bright as an angel's. Part of me is thinking that whenever that happens to someone, you ought to be correlating to when this has happened before. The only other time that we have in Scripture that this has happened before is with Moses, when Moses goes up Mount Sinai and talks with God for, I think, uh, if I remember right, it's forty days that he's up there talking with God while the people down uh, down on the mountain are building a golden calf and worshiping that. As he comes down, Moses' face is shining, beaming with light, and people are afraid of it, so much so that Moses has to wear a veil because his face is shining. The exact same language is used here of Stephen. Yet, that doesn't deter them one bit. They are staring at his shining face, and the high priest looks at him and asks this simple question. Are these accusations true? So here we go. This is the start of it. Stephen's been accused. He's been working among people, with people, and uh, preaching and everything. He gets this chance among the ruling body, the Sanhedrin. Are these accusations true? Stephen launches into a great long sermon that seems to really meander and jump all over Israel's history. At the end, there's accusations that really seem to come out of nowhere. It's one of the longer sermons, as I mentioned, recorded in the New Testament. And if Stephen were here today, if he were to preach this exact same sermon to us today, I would imagine many people would probably go back, shake his hand and say, that was a good sermon, but what was the point? It's kind of when you read through Stephen's sermon, that's kind of how you feel is, what are you doing here, Stephen? Stephen, what are you talking about? Stephen doesn't necessarily whenever the accusations are said he doesn't do it like I would have if this were my sermon if I would have been in that situation I would have been saying yes I said that I said that Jesus was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days but you took it out of context my very next words were but he was talking about his body did you miss that? Did you miss that part? And I would start the fight because I would start to defend all the accusations. Instead, what Stephen does is he places the accusations in context. He gives them the context of really what they're really focusing on. They, the accusation here is that they, uh, they accused him of blaspheming God by speaking against the temple. Stephen doesn't go after that lie. He doesn't go after it saying, that's a lie, he said "In instead he shows their bad theology. Now, you know, that's a good way of, of coming to an argument, of saying their bad theology with that. He equates the they are equating the temple with God. As he starts into his, his sermon, starting in chapter 7, verse 2, he starts with the beginning of the nation, with Abraham. Abraham is in Mesopotamia, of all places, in godless Mesopotamia. God calls. The God of glory appears to Abraham whenever the whole family is probably worshiping idols, involved in Mesopotamian ideas, and calls them out. Then God comes again to Abraham whenever he's in Haran, after his father's death, and calls him to the land of Canaan. He promises Abraham's people will never... Or promises people this land that he's living in, this land of Israel, promises all of it to him, but Abraham himself will never get a bit of this land. He lives much of his life there with, with no heir to continue this hope. The covenant that he gives is a covenant of circumcision. He's saying, I will do this because in my promises, that of circumcision, as long as you circumcise, this is going to happen stephen's point was that god could work with abraham could give a mark on his people that they are his people god doesn't need a temple god doesn't need a temple to do that he resides in people starting in verse 9 he takes off with the story of joseph joseph got sold into slavery by his brothers by his own flesh and blood but in slavery in the pagan country of egypt God was with Joseph, giving him the wisdom to become a ruler second in command next to Pharaoh. God didn't need a building to work through Joseph. In verse 20, when the the people were enslaved, God raised Moses, who was marked to be a leader from the very beginning. He He was raised an Egyptian prince, although he was still a Hebrew Jew, He was raised an Egyptian prince, so he had the makings of being a great leader. And as that started and his leading started was whenever he saw an Egyptian master beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers, and as he tries to stop that, he ends up killing the Egyptian. Stephen says here, 725, Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. This is where Moses is assuming peop- his brothers would understand his role, but they didn't. And in fact, he tries to settle the dispute just the next day with two Israelites. Uh, the one in wrong pushes, uh, pushes Moses aside and basically says, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me like you did the, other, the, the Egyptian? Moses then runs to Median. Forty years later, God calls, uh, God speaks to him through a burning bush on a mountain. This is nowhere near the mountain that the temple was going to stand. And God spoke to him on this mountain. God declared that spot holy ground, not because there was a building on it, but because he was there. In verse 35, Uh, Moses finally leads the people out of Egypt. God gives him the plans for a tabernacle, the first building that God is going to allow built. He tells him exactly how to build. It goes through that, and this is going to be a sign of his presence. Not that his whole presence could be uh, entangled in one building, but here's a place where you will be able to experience God's presence. Later, verse 46 David wants to build a permanent house for the Lord. Stephen's working through all this, and he's just hitting all these points. And David comes, and he realizes he's got a beautiful house, and the Lord is still in an old tent. What can we do about this? David asks God, can I build you a house? Can I build you a permanent residence among the people? God says, no, but your son can. So he gives them all the plans to build the temple. Now, this temple that was being built was not the same that, uh, that Solomon built. This was one that was much larger and ornate that Herod had built to please the Jews. Stephen then says, though, with this, However, after saying all this, However, the Most High does not live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, my Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Can you build me a temple as good as that, asked the Lord? Can you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hand make both heaven and earth? Basically, God is saying, you can build me a house, but you can't contain me. I am bigger than any structure or building you can make. I am bigger than that. I made the very building materials you're using to make this. Stephen doesn't argue with their accusation that that he spoke against the temple. He didn't speak against the temple. He could have argued that way, but he didn't argue that way. Instead, he shows them that the temple should not be equated with the presence of God. It was almost a form of idolatry that they had turned into. They were engaging in idolatry by worshiping a building, by equating that building with God. And they had forgot that it's the God that they meet there is the one that needs worship. The next accusation they gave is they accused Stephen of speaking against the law. Again, he doesn't argue with this accusation. He doesn't say, no, you got it wrong. I I wasn't speaking against the law, just changing it a little or fulfilling it as we like to say that the law was being fulfilled instead he says you know you're one to talk you accuse me of speaking against the law you're one to talk you have always rejected god's leaders in their words let's go back and, and retrace how uh, how stephen does this joseph's brothers rejected him the people rejected moses and god Moses even prophesied about the coming of Jesus. But Stephen says in verse 39, if it'll click here, but our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf. and They sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing they had made. Then God Turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the, st- uh, to serve the stars in the heavens as their gods. In the, wo- in the book of the prophets, it is written, Was it not me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No, you carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Molech, the star of your god, Re- Repham, and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon. Even though they had the very presence of God with them, they had this tabernacle. They had this fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. They still rejected what Moses was bringing and what God was bringing through Moses. The people were rejecting this. Then Stephen goes for the jugular. He brings it home. At the very last of this, he brings it all home and says, Not only did your forefathers neglect to obey the laws of Moses and reject Moses, you rejected and killed the very one he prophesied about. Verse 51, you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart or uncircumcised at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Needless to say, at this point, his accusers in the Sanhedrin is not too happy with this sermon. It's maybe a sermon that gives a reaction, because their reaction to this was really... they 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 don't like it and and stephen knows this he looks up into heaven and for some reason god opened heaven for him and he sees jesus standing beside god but that wasn't enough he's a preacher he's got to tell everybody about it so he says to the sanhedrin i see the son of man standing at the right hand of god and the sanhedrin leaders freak out for lack of better words cover their ears they start screaming to drown out his blasphemous words as they saw him they rush him out of the town out of the city they begin to stone him and the first martyr is about to be made but before that happens stephen has one last thing in his sermon he prays as they stoned him stephen prayed lord receive my spirit he fell to his knees shouting lord do not charge them with this sin And with that, he died. This is what Stephen said to the people this day. God is not constrained by buildings and structures. It's not by our own opinions. And they have missed everything that Scripture has been pointing to Jesus about. They've been pointing to this Messiah. They expected a Messiah, and they had missed it. They had missed it. So what does Stephen's sermon say 2,000 years later? What does it say to us now? I think the first point is, don't miss God's salvation. God can be a mixture of, of small things and surprising things and really obvious things. This is really a scandal to those who always look for God to be big and flashy. You know those people who would just expect God to always work miracles and big works And a lot of times, it's really hard for us to see that God is sometimes working in just tiny little things, things that we can write off as scientific. Oh, that was just good medicine. Well, who gave medicine? Who gave our minds to develop some medicine? Maybe God is working in just some ways that are obvious. Just look, with this point being made, just look at the people, Stephen chooses to to name here abraham a childless man born in iraq going about his own business but god makes this man so blessed that he could later on chase four kings after uh chase them after they had already destroyed five kings recovering his nephew lot and his whole family joseph hated by his brother sold into slavery wrongfully imprisoned in egypt but so blessed by God that it became second only to Pharaoh. Moses, raised not as a Hebrew, but as an Egyptian, one of the oppressors, mind you, rejected by both sides by being the other, exiled for 40 years, yet God calls him, when he's 80, to lead people out of slavery. He's so blessed by God to miraculously defeat Pharaoh and his whole army and he also was blessed because he got to hear the very voice of God. David, the smallest in the family, the runt of the litter, whatever he might be, grows up to be a great warrior, and who is said to have a heart after God's own heart. Jesus, son of a carpenter, not trained in religious leadership, steps into it at age 33 with the very power of God and his words, dies a traitor and a blasphemer between two thieves, and so doing becomes the savior of the world. Don't miss that God sometimes works in just small things. That all throughout history, this has been happening, and I think this is Stephen's point, that God's salvation is sometimes small, sometimes inconspicuous, sometimes surprising, maybe a little obvious, When you're in a Christian-saturated world, much like we are now, the news of Jesus just kind of seems like old hat. seems like old news. We want something fresh and exciting. Give us something new, a new take on it. Sometimes God is not working like that. God may be working in that saturated system to show us who he really is. I think the next thing Stephen is saying is God will build up and knock down structures as he sees fit. Not as we see fit, not as we would want him to. God gave the plans for the tabernacle whenever the people needed the tabernacle. And then whenever the time had come for the tabernacle to be done, God gave the plans for a temple. The temple to be built, and it was going to be a great place. But when its time had come, he used his puppets, the Romans, to come and destroy the temple. Its time had come because God had given a new plan that in the body of Jesus Christ and the church and how this was going to work, The problem that the people who killed Stephen had was that they did not distinguish between God and the structures God had given. They didn't understand that God was different than the temple. The temple had its purpose for a time. When we begin to worship the structures God had given rather than the God himself, we are accused and, and guilty of adultery, idolatry. We are guilty of worshiping an idol. I'm not sure we're really that far from the people who killed Stephen. I'm not sure we're really that far from understanding this very, very thing. We can hold tightly to many structures that God has given for a time. We set up idols that could actually be opposing to God. It may not be our building, it may not be our worship assemblies, but it may be our order of worship. It may be a cloth over the communion table maybe over Bible classes or maybe even versions of the Bible. When King James commissioned translators to translate the Bible into common English back in the 1600s, it was so that the common person could understand it. If the King James Bible sounds like Shakespeare, it's because it's written the exact same time Shakespeare's writing. And really, so much changed with uh, with the king james bible coming into english the english language became much more appreciated and much uh, more of a romantic language because it was finally written down it wasn't vulgar anymore but later on that language changed english language changed from shakespearean english we don't speak like shakespeare most of us have a hard time reading shakespeare and understanding it we don't speak like that and so that time maybe has passed in some some Whenever new translations came out there was a whole lot of quarrel over can they be used. I think we're creatures the same creatures of habit the same as Stephen's ac- accusers are that we sometimes worship things that aren't God. They might still be good and they might still have their purpose but they may not be what God is wanting at that time. Something may be changing. And I'm not proposing that the King James uh, version is is wrong and evil. I'm just saying, maybe it's time is different. Some things have to come along and and kick us out of ruts. Come along and encourage us to get out of ruts that we're in and move on beyond that. I think uh, the early church had to have its encouragement to break out of its comfort zone, to fulfill what Jesus really said and commanded, actually, in the beginning of the book of Acts, before Jesus had been taken up to heaven. He says to his disciples here in verse Or chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. By the end of chapter 7, how far have they gotten? Jerusalem. So much has happened, and the furthest that they have gotten is Jerusalem. This command is saying something a little bit different. It's only when Stephen is martyred that, as we see, chapter 8, verse 1... After Stephen is martyred, there's great persecution. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like fulfilling what Jesus commanded them to do? Were they doing it on their own? They had to have a simple reminder. They had to get out of their comfort zone to to go out to where Jesus said get out of Jerusalem you'll be my witnesses there yes but then Judea Samaria to the ends of the world because of one great sermon by Stephen and his willingness to die persecution of the early church started but it was that very persecution that that spread the early church spread the boundaries of God's church they had to get out of their comfort zones and do the will of Christ by spreading good news to the world. I think we a lot of times can get in our own ruts and we can we can get in those places that actually hinder us from spreading the gospel because either we've no, never done it that way or it's just we're not comfortable. We're not comfortable getting out of this and I think that's what Stephen's sermon is telling us that God does not dwell in those structures especially those made by man so we can't just leave him there we can't just leave god in this building and we're done we come and and pay homage to him we worship him for a little bit and then we head on and go about our day god dwells in our hearts now is the time when christians need to be having an ear to heaven listening to what god wants us to do and a foot on this earth ready to put his will into action whatever it takes whatever it takes from us and i think stephen was the example of what it took For him to encourage, by his death, encourage the church to spread its boundaries, to spread the kingdom of the Lord across the earth. Do we have that same mentality? Or do we have the the mentality of the Sanhedrin willing to just uphold our idols of God rather than uphold what God is really saying? I hope that can never be said about us. I hope that we're a people, we're a church that is always listening to God and acting upon it in our community and in our world and that the boundaries of the kingdom are always being pushed further, further out into the world and that we're a light shining. And I pray that individually, that the boundaries of our hearts are pushed further and further back if you're in need of that, if you're in need of those, those boundaries taking a, a different understanding and just being dissolved within your heart and letting Jesus rule over every bit of you, then we have an opportunity through the invitation for you to come and, and come clean through either baptism or just confession and letting us know your intent and helping us let, letting us help you on your journey to listening to God and acting in this world. If you have any need of this congregation, would you please come forward as we stand and sing?